from Immersive Labs, this is Cyber Humanity. Hello again, I'm your host Chris Pace. Cyber Humanity is the podcast taking cyber security personally, trying to get inside the heads of hackers as well as putting our feet in the shoes of defenders. These podcasts essentially come in two flavours, either us ranting about themes close to the hearts of security types or us chatting about threat and security stuff from recent weeks. And this episode is one of those. I'm joined by my crew of the Starship Cyber, Kev Breen, <laughs> Paul Bentham and Max Vetter. Hello. Hello. So a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about uh, Emotet, which hadn't been in the news for ages and suddenly now has been in the news like two weeks on the bounce. Um, but the headline this week is that researchers, security researchers, have secretly been distributing an Emotet vaccine across the world. Love it. Um, the company called Binary Defense have identified a bug in the Emotet malware and have been using it to prevent the malware from uh, from essentially uh, attacking new uh, victims. This is interesting on many, many levels. I will let Kev, I will let Kev talk briefly about um, like how, how a vaccine actually works in the context of a threat like Emotet and some of the technicalities of it. And then I actually want to get in a little bit to talking about what does this mean if we extrapolate this out? Like if, we did this against every threat. What would the world look like? So, but Kev, tell us about the technicalities of this first. What does this vaccine actually do? How does it work? Uh, yeah, so vaccines uh, or cyber vaccines aren't uh, specifically anything new. The, the the concept's been around for a while. They've always just been hard to implement. But what malware authors tend to do is that they don't want malware running rogue on a system. So uh, when you get a user to double click an exe file or you get it to run or you've got it setting an auto start for when the computer boots, you want it to run once. You don't want it to spawn itself like hundreds of thousands of times. Uh, you don't want it to like keep installing itself over and over again because that just becomes noisy and difficult to manage and can bring a system down. So what malware authors do is they use a variety of techniques, uh, something called a mutex, uh, which means only one process can be running at a time uh, or installation paths that it will check to see whether it's already installed. Um, and if it is installed, then it won't do anything. If it's not installed, then it installs itself. Um, so that's what malware typically does. The concept behind a vaccine is if I know that when this malware tries to install itself, the first thing it does is check a registry key if I create that registry key ahead of time, then the malware gets there, runs and goes, oh, I'm already installed and quits. Uh, or I can inject a mutex into the operating system. So when that malware runs, it goes, let me check to see if I'm already running. It sees a mutex goes, oh, I must already be running and shuts itself down. Um, so that's kind of the idea behind uh, a vaccine. Uh, emo crash, uh, as this one is called, uh, takes that a step further and what the researcher found was that uh, when it installs itself it does a registry key check uh, and reads a value and they were able to modify that value so the, the malware actively crashed so it didn't stop it didn't not install itself it just like completely died on its heels uh, and the nice thing about that in the way that it died is it generated an event log uh, so you could put uh, emo crash on your system uh, if uh, Imatet tries to be installed, then it generated a log so you could actually see uh, whether it was being installed or not, as well as preventing it from happening. All very clever stuff. The cool thing about this, after they'd 
developed this email crash thing is that they didn't want to like out on the internet like hey we found this thing so they distributed it through the national um, computer emergency response teams uh, all the certs didn't they and then they only sent it to their trusted network so this has been happening for a while now and uh, i guess oh emotet accidentally patched it or fixed it by changing their persistent mechanism didn't they yeah they, pa- they actually patched it out twice um so the first round uh, they changed the installation method but because they wanted the ability to they basically put backward compatibility into their malware, uh, which meant that Emo Crash still worked even though they changed the installation. Uh, and then uh, a month or so later, they removed that backward compatibility, uh, and then uh, then this, it was done. The cha- like changing malware or changing how it reacts to a malware. Like, what if that crash crashed the machine? Wouldn't that then be a breach of the Community Misuse Act under of what the guys in binary analysis doing? Well, you've got to remember that this isn't that they're not going around to systems and infecting it themselves with the the fix. They're saying this is a fix. If you want to install it, you can. Um, it's not like they were going rogue and like shipping this around the world without uh, operators knowing. It was a they put together a package. Uh, they sent that around and said, if you want to use this, you can. That's why this thing was quite good um, because they did all that that safety checks. They made sure that it was. Uh, it only affected that running binary. It didn't have long-lasting ramifications. It's pretty lightweight as well, wasn't it? Though it's only um, putting a key in the registry. So, it's like as as vaccines go, it was pretty like benign. Yeah, it's it's very low risk. And like I said, they they weren't doing this like to organisations. They were just saying, like this will protect you. It's like at your risk if you want to try it, but there's very low risk. I want to go back to something that Paul mentioned where you were talking about the distribution of this thing so they obviously kept it on the download it wasn't um published in any way it wasn't shared around um and then it was shared through the certs to like you said a trusted network or something like that i'm kind of interested in understanding who who forms that trusted network and who decides who's trusted and who's not yeah so that's a that's a really interesting part of uh, international collabor- collaboration around these types of topics so each country um well most countries have a national cert a national computer emergency response team whose job it is uh to protect the nation's critical national infrastructure normally um against um attacks and to be the responders for that you often in the uk we had gov cert and cert uk they were two separate uh um uh, organizations and merged in 2016 with the establishment of the National Cybersecurity Center to be the same um, uh, team to be, be able to respond to that. They, of course, uh, partner with US CERT and CERT mm. FR and CERT um, NL and so on and so forth. And they are. But not CERT RU or CERT CN. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, there's some like CERT, the Thai CERT, uh, really like um, prevalent in the community. And there's this community, um, it's FIRST, F I R S T, because it's the. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it stands for, but it's the the community of incident, incident response responders. To, yeah. yeah, and they um and they have annual conferences and tech uh, collaborations and so on and so forth. And these, because they are employed in the defence, and of course there are lots of um lots of it's not just nas- nations like lots of like there's health certs and so on and so forth. Different sectors have their own uh, computer emergency response teams. Uh, in the US, there's ISACs and ISALs and all kinds of different communities that come together to share and collaborate with information. And by forming those 
networks, those collaboration networks, and sharing information securely, the defenders can collaborate against the attacks they're facing um, and hopefully um, build the kind of uh, strength of the uh, of the uh, community. I imagine in the UK, CISP would have been a, a big part of that. Yeah, so CISP is the... Uh, <laughs> I've... Cybersecurity information it. sharing. Spent three years selling it. Uh, the NCSC sponsored. <laughs> it's not like you want to. It's not like we'd expect you to know anything about it. Yes, this was all shared at TLP Green Interested Communities. Oh, so, the yeah. traffic light protocol, ladies and gentlemen. The most complicated <laughs> protocol that you can find in information security. So, so I, I still, I still have questions. Um, I understand that there is this thing that we are obviously attempting to ensure that access to intelligence, or in this case, access to a methodology to interfere with malicious code is not something that should be shared with everyone. But it feels like what we just... You can't just tweet it, Chris. No, but it feels like what we just described, and I'm not saying that I'm not, I'm definitely not saying I have an answer to this, but it feels like what we just described is a kind of a world where if you're in the club and I, i'm not trying to be derogatory i'm honestly not i'm just trying to understand how this works for the benefit of all defenders not just those who happen to be part of that network well you, but that's exactly the problem isn't it a trusted network is only a trusted network if you can trust everybody in that network as soon as you have somebody that you don't trust it's no longer a trusted network like the circle of it's the circle of trust circle of trust right so mm. in with CISP, the cyber information Security sharing, sharing partnership. partnership. <laughs> Paul has now, now forgotten all about... Paul, I've literally how, wiped very, that from my mind. Was it a very traumatic time for you? <laughs> I don't know if I spent three years working <laughs> to build... Oh, God. So how that works is... You have to have been recommended to it's a bit like a mosaic Yeah, that's what okay, okay, so like I say, I was trying not to be derogatory. Got but it. The word club the word club does come I, to I mind. Didn't, I didn't We're call a it a club. A member. yeah, immersive loves remember. That you have to uh, know somebody who's already a member. They have to recommend. Oh no, this you. is more like a golf club. We have to wait for someone to die before. <laughs> no, you no, 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 no. You can have lots it's like of a finals club. <laughs> you just have to be recommended. You have to know the yeah. secret handshake. Yeah, and you have to do any do any things to, but, to but it was qualify. built up like there's um regional organized in the uk anyway regional organized cybercrime units those are um like organized by the police and their members participate in those in their local community so if you're a, a you know a welsh network security professional working working for admiral or some other company in wales you would then be part of that regional unit and then you would join CISP to share information wider and it's all about cross-sector information sharing and it's all coming back to me now the one thing i will say to chris's point uh so i was a CISP analyst i was a CISP member uh with a defense contractor i was a CISP member with the mod and the amount of information that was shared with me in those organizations is radically different to the amount that people are willing to share with me uh, as Immersive Labs member. So, mm, yes, it's, clicky, isn't it? it's very, very Yeah, that's clicky. the problem, Chris. So there are circles of trust. So there's like, whatever, 10,000 members of CISP in the UK. But then there is a teeny tiny little groups where the trusted people So go. there are circles of trust within the circle the circles of trust. Of trust. But I tell you, it's better than when there was micro a, uh, dots of trust. One might yes, say, yes, yes. But when there was, um, what, <laughs> I think it was WannaCry. When WannaCry hit, there was lots of different ways of collaboration, and I don't think the US have quite got this. The um, NH, 
the National Health ISAC, it had something like a thousand people on a conference call to share and distribute that information. Now, can you imagine? Like, a, could you go on mute, please? <laughs> Somebody, somebody's on. Is that? Could somebody? Could everybody go on mute, please? I, I can hear a crash trolley in the background. Can you go on mute? <laughs> and you can't validate anybody on those calls, can you? Like, how would you know that they're trusted? But isn't when you have circles of trust, doesn't that kind of uh, fly in the face of the whole? Uh, we are open about vulnerabilities out there and about ways we can actually stop hackers. Like I thought, the, the whole CVE process and everything. To, is, to the guy, to emo, to the guy who um, came up with emo crashes credit, he did try to register <laughs> the vulnerabilities in Emotet with Mitre. Yeah, I saw just that. For, just for just for jokes, but they did they didn't let him. Uh, sorry, sorry, Max. You I'm really disappointed with that. <laughs> but it is it, it, it it's the point of why should any certain organizations get access and others not because they're not part of the club it, i've got to say i, I disagree like uh defense contractors yeah, like cpni like <laughs> i would i would say that it's more important that they get it and they're allowed to keep it private than tom's hardware store down the road his website doesn't we don't need to protect that with the same level of integrity do you but do you know how you get membership of an isec well i mean you have to pay obviously <laughs> these companies CISP, CISP isn't that way though i think cr critical national infrastructure and everything yeah I, without doubt but when it then starts to get into oh well you're a member or not of some organization or not it seems a bit strange that if you don't pay you don't you know that that doesn't that doesn't work in when all other cyber threat intel like most a lot of it is is freely available you know well, it's not like a lot of cyber threat companies sell you their threat feeds. And there's a really good, there's a really interesting white paper that came out that shows there was only 4% crossover uh, between all of those things that you pay for. So all of these high uh, high fidelity threat intel feeds, uh, they took four of them and there was only 4% of identical data between them. Weren't they all in on uh, that then? Because that means you have to buy them all. Well, the... <laughs> Um, so that shows you just how open wow. it's not. Allegedly. <laughs> no. no, they're not allegedly. Folks. They did yeah. the research. Uh, but like CISP, you don't have to pay for CISP. You, it's just very much a like old boys club. You, you have to know somebody in there to be able to get uh, invited to get that level of sharing. And they do. Well, you're they not, do you're not making them. it better calling it old, old boys club. <laughs> no. But like I said, like, sometimes you have to protect... Like, I don't disagree with what they did. Um, like they protected national infrastructure, they protected uh, some very important parts of infrastructure uh, by sharing this information. And had they gone with it uh, sooner, uh, then they wouldn't have. It wouldn't have had the same level of impact. So, uh, not with everything, but with stuff like this, I'm all for limited sharing. I think you're right. It's better to have those things run on a national level, on a governmental level, as long as it's organised properly. Um, which leads us neatly onto another bit of news well kind of news a white paper that came out of australia last week where they were suggesting that in terms of critical national infrastructure where there were businesses under attack in australia and obviously this is in in light of a lot of recent events we've, we've talked about it in previous episodes that the australian government was looking to run cyber response for those businesses so, so what I had kind of described as almost like a cyber martial law, if you like, um, or a cyber state of emergency, where the government would intervene in order to respond um, with those organisations being uh, attacked, especially where national critical infrastructure was involved. I just wonder what our feelings are about that. Great. I don't need to hire a cert team anymore. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, yeah, them. that's really interesting. <laughs> that that in, in that instinct. So, if the nuclear power station at Hinkley Point is under cyber attack. I want Ian Levy from the National Cybersecurity Centre right there <laughs> on the ground in a helicopter, zipping down a uh, zip wire with his balaclava on. That, I want him there. Yeah, sure. I, <laughs> I, and that's with cyber. We, we've got used to it being a very um, private sector corporate thing. Whereas if someone, if there mm. were people attacking it physically, the, you'd call the army, right? They, of course you would, or, or the police force, or someone uh, in the government. Imagine <laughs> calling the army. <laughs> Hello, how can I help you? Hi, is that the army? Yeah, it's Max Fisher here. There are mean people outside the massive labs office in Bristol. Could you come and sort them out, please? Thanks. Uh, no, Hinkley Point, not a mission. I don't think we're important enough. Um, but, you know, you would, and you would call it in for those those attacks like that. So why wouldn't, yeah, why wouldn't it be um, more like that with... Yeah, you get the SAS. You see Ian Levy in the SAS, it'd be brilliant. Cyber, cyber SAS. So I think the, the danger there is that if you're one of those organisations and you're going to become reliant on the government stepping in, they're only going to step in when things have got really bad, uh, which means that like, it's that, that's a very reactive thing. So if you... Well... Well, now, let me <laughs> let me pause you there for a moment, Kev, because looking through the... Propose. I, I don't. A white paper, I think, is like a sort of suggestion of what could be. So I think it's like a policy sort of suggestion, but it's quite specific. And and I'll quote this bit because I think this talks directly to what you're 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 kind of saying. Um. So it says the government should be. Um. First of all, it says that infrastructure operators, critical infrastructure operators, um, must not be allowed to hack back but should be empowered to take necessary preventative and mitigating action against significant threats. So basically it's saying two things. It's saying that the government could become involved in where it's in the national interest. And then it's saying they would um, also empower uh, organizations to uh, defend themselves uh, in a kind of, in a forceful way, I think is what it's suggesting. You know, what I'm just imagining here. You know, like when the he- when you, like ha- you have a health check of a restaurant, and they come in and they shut the restaurant down. Can you imagine? Like, <laughs> you can imagine the Australian government going in, like, "Wow, this is dreadful cybersecurity. We're shutting you down," and they just shut down the company until they fix the cyber hygiene. That'd be great. I mean, I don't disagree with that either. <laughs> like, you're so interventionist, Kev. <laughs> I've created these like completely like surreal version of future. Like, yeah. <laughs> With that do, one. But do we think that? Go- I mean, because the suggestion is in this, you know, this document from Aust- the Australian government is suggesting that they want to reach, they want to reach further than that. That is the that is the suggestion. I think the thing that we've probably not covered explicitly on the podcast, but we've kind of uh, implied it before, is that of course national governments with large intelligence capabilities are of course supporting these companies. Interesting on that point. That does then bring us on to the next story as well. Because that's another collaboration between private and public sector, uh, which is getting some some heat, where the Secret Service um, had been buying phone data, location oh, look, data. Max has found which... a police story and he wants to like shoehorn us <laughs> yeah. over to it. <laughs> Shoehorned. So what what happened here is Secret Service was buying location data from uh, a company called Babel, and there are loads of companies that, that have done that. So this isn't new either, but it's it's the fact that basically they're getting around uh, doing warrants on people uh, by just buying location data off private companies. Is that okay? <laughs> of course it's okay. 
government just pulled the data. It's available. There's nothing illegal about that. It it is it is publicly available. So just to be clear, if I was in a if I was a country, and there was a certain social media application used by the kids for making videos, and I decided as the government that I wanted to buy <laughs> that data, and um, that would be perfectly fine to you, Paul, in this context. Um, I feel like this might be a setup. <laughs> But let me, <laughs> I think that data that's for sale, if it's not sanctioned by export controls, should be available. I'm, I'm with you, Paul. If everybody else can use it, why can't the law enforcement? Government and law enforcement do have a higher standard than private sector. So they can't do certain things with data that private sector can because... Why? What, what do you mean, why? That's just a fact. Why? <laughs> no, it's actually true. I think the Twitter firehose, back, I don't think you can do this anymore, but back when the Twitter firehose was there, like it literally the C's and C's of the Twitter firehose, you said, said it can't be used by law enforcement, like for any purposes. It can't be used by government, but for any purposes. So there are checks and balances on what a government can do to its citizens with private data, but they, they seem to have gone gone around it here just by buying it. But no, but hang on. But in this, in the Twitter firehose example I'm talking about, the Twitter terms and conditions explicitly excluded the use uh, of that data by law enforcement. So governments couldn't use it without breaching the terms and conditions of Twitter. So that was one thing. Do you know that the terms and conditions explicitly said use by, or was it a whole load of was it a load of use particular uses? So, for example, in this, in terms of this location data, the terms of use said that it couldn't be used as evidence in a trial, mm. but there were no yeah. other limitations on how that data could be used. Like, I'm going to get flamed for this statement, but governments don't break the law. Oh. <laughs> Oh my. Well, I don't know that you're going to get flamed, but I'm just, I'm actually, I'm dumb. I might say that I'm dumbstruck. But here's my point, right? If the, you, if you're a, you look at the T, T's and C's on a, uh, on a, on a feed, a data feed, you can't breach them. You can't sit there in any context as a government employee, a civil servant, certainly in the, in, in the, in like Western democracies, let's call it that, you, and breach that. Like, you can't do that. That, you can't be illegal and work for, and work for the government that just doesn't work their t's and c said research only it that's what it says this is for internal research only but then this is where we need a lawyer on the podcast because define research i am researching where certain in certain <laughs> individuals in certain socio-economic yeah. or demographic groups are at particular times that could to one man is research and to another is profiling so and surveillance and and everything you know you can track the, the amount of location so they were using all kinds of apps to gather this location data from um and there is uh, like S senator ron wyden has basically they put a law in place to to stop people doing stop the law enforcement agencies doing this and kind of just bypassed it which is why it's quite interesting that he's chasing so it. actually so so just just to let's take a step back because it appears to me that what you're saying is a government broke the law well according to paul they, didn't break the it. they, they break stepped the around they stepped around it it's impossible they stepped around it wow if you're not planning on breaking the law then what's the harm
<laughs> the, the general point about all of these things is that there is the law and then there's the interpretation of the law and you end up with the shades of grey because of the uh, interpretation. And I don't, know, I don't know the specifics that Max is talking about, but when you buy the data, there's you probably there's a law that says if you're using location data on us personnel then you have to go to the um intercept court or what it was called the pfizer court um um but i suppose they said well we're just buying this data that's available to anybody that buys it we're not breaching the t's and c's and so those two things existed simultaneously and it was simultaneously illegal and not illegal and somebody and i'm absolutely i would hope this happened uh, a legal representative employed by the government fbi or whomever it was said yeah that's fine if you thought about chain of custody for that data and this is again where i think that legislation like gdpr has made has done a good job of helping to people to understand and organizations to understand how data must be handled carefully but i think we're headed to a place in a generation from now where people will be so au fait with their own data and how it's used that this will not be allowed to happen yeah 100 percent agree i mean the fact is I should be in control of my data and there should, there is technical solutions. I mean, it's not, this isn't impossible. So I have my data, my, my profile, which I register, create, and then I give grant access to that profile to all these companies. There is then a question about how, how comfortable we are with what happens with it. Like I'm perfectly comfortable for it to go somewhere so someone can market something to me. That's down to like, the, I can make free choices about what gets marketed to me. I can't make free choices about a law enforcement organization deciding I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and coming and arresting me. I think that's what's weird about this story, isn't it? Like, so they can put a Pfizer section 302, 502, whatever it is, into Facebook, Twitter, Google, etc. for and it goes through the Pfizer court and they give um, access to that person's data. That takes too long. So they bought the data set directly from the private company. Now, that private company has got access to that data and you would hope that the terms and conditions in which that data was obtained was consented to by the people who supplied their data. We do know in the example of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, Analytica where data was given to Cambridge Analytica, a third party within that relationship, which was consented to and then consent was removed, yet Cambridge Analytica then continued to use that data set for its targeting, targeted marketing and advertising and so on. And that was where it becomes great because you've given your data, it was given legally, that permissions changed. It was a, a third party relationship. So I'd consented with Facebook and Facebook had created this relationship with Cambridge Analytica and then it all changed. And then you get into these grey areas. So I don't know where this date, this bab, uh, Babel data comes from, but that's that's the thing. I, I consent to give my location data to Google, maybe, but I don't get consent for Google to give that to every law enforcement uh, either. So how can you? Con- every SaaS platform in the world is doing this. Like every SaaS platform in the world is doing I bet this. Bet they do. But uh, third parties are probably covered in those terms and conditions that none of, of course, us read. But I mean, there's other ones. So that they found. Immigration and Customs Enforcement and the IRS are also using other companies for exactly the same. And I know a few years back, the NYPD um, was doing using one called uh, Geofedia, I think, and they and they got caught up with um, basically Black Lives Matter. They were using it to track people through that, and that was the only time. And and they got shut out from it. They they couldn't use it anymore because it got out into the public that they were using it for that purpose. So you know, 
having that data from private companies is is a thing and i think i think a lot of people use clearly a lot of a lot of organizations here and using it in the us it'd be interesting to see if they're using it here as well i think what's amazing about this so you mentioned gdpr chris and i remember all the kind of oh my god how are you going to handle business cards when gdpr comes out and all that kind of stuff and it was like pretty like worrying and there was a lot of like noise about it the way that we handle our customers data today I've, I can't imagine the situation where we'd have the pre-GDPR even. Like, it's the right thing to do that we have data processing agreements. We make sure that we know every single uh, system or where where our user's data is and say that when the user wants to delete that data or when we're doing an audit, we know where that data is. It kind of blows my mind that there was like, and this is like no longer than like two years ago, where data could be anywhere. Who cares where the data is? It's just personal data. What does it matter? To my point... That is why I think in a generation from now, this kind of conversation will be extremely different. So that's the day we can all look forward to. Okay, we are going to wrap up with another Hackers Could, if you guys need a reminding of what this feature is. Um, it's basically where uh, we ask every a story that starts with the words Hackers Could, I ask... Um, my esteemed colleagues, uh, whether uh, hackers would or hackers might or hackers probably won't. So we've got a couple of good ones this week. The first one is, um, I don't know how many of you have got that thing in your car where if you're driving down the M4 and you start to drop off, um, it lets you know if you're straying out of your, <laughs> your lane, like it buzzes at you. In fact, my car takes you back in, which is really unnerving. The car kind of takes over. Um, but according to, uh, according to a headline, um, and I will read the headline in the appropriate voice. <clears throat> Hackers could hijack lane keeping systems to control your car, experts warn. <laughs> so, Kev, um, over to you. Uh, Hackers could? Hackers might? Hackers probably won't? Hackers probably don't care. <laughs> Um, oh, what are they going to do? Like drive you to the nearest? They're going to keep you in your lane. It's brilliant yeah. to keep you in your lane. <laughs> Left a bit, right a bit. It's well, like I mean, auto auto lane. driving. The the interesting thing is, so it, like to your to your point, Chris, uh, some of the more advanced features will actually pull you back into the lane. So if you're straying over, it'll pull you back in. Now, hypothetically speaking, if I could take control of that system and those sensors, I could drive you all the way from the outside lane to the inside lane and into the... <gasps> all the way from the outside lane to the inside lane. Or I could take you from the inside all the way to the outside into the central reservation and through. Like, I could just oh, drift you across. Okay. However, you worse. could That's just not so pull good. the left hand so down uh, and yeah. just... I could just turn the other way, <laughs> yeah. And what and what would be the motivation? You know, surely they want to drive them to a cash point and there's hacker, hackers there saying, get the money. <laughs> no, have you not seen the... Um, the Fast and the Furious, where they drive 3,000 cars out of the third story uh, car park and have them chasing them on autopilot I around have the not city. I've seen that. That's exactly what the hackers do. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a brilliant, I, I a brilliant out clip. Of Fast and the Furious 6, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember which one it was, but it was, it was amazing. Uh, all of these uh, Toyotas just suddenly springing to life with no keys and ignitions, driving out of a car park uh, and chasing them en masse around the city. So this is what's going to happen. This that's time. what's going to happen. That's what this is. Yeah. That's what this is. I'm still to. a bit confused about how they actually, I'm assuming <laughs> that because it's a car, 
car and not all cars are connected to the internet like fundamentally i'm assuming you have to plug something into the car but the exploit factor they're speculating here it's 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 quite fun this article because it just makes stuff up but i like it so um <laughs> hackers could exploit the uh, smart uh, connected device on your phone which i have for my car so like yes. you've got a little app on your phone that can like turn it on and off and open the windows and flash the lights and tell if it's run out of petrol and tell you where it is that kind of thing because that doesn't encrypt communications which is kind of irrelevant anyway but you it gets onto that and then a magic happens and they uh, get from your phone into your car and now the hackers are in your car and of course your car's connected to the internet and now hackers could make the steering wheel they could park mine for me it'd probably be better at it than i am actually and do the parallel parking thing and that'd be great our, our car parks itself and neither of us want to use it because we refuse to trust it to park for us isn't that bad uh- I've used it twice. Uh, it's terrifying. It was terrifying both I times. I used it once and it, I thought it had crashed, but actually it just put the brakes in. <laughs> it doesn't even, it's not even scientists have found, is it, this one? It's, it, it's not like they It's essentially an article that says things that things our technology could be, be hacked. hacked. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so hackers probably won't then. Uh, Let's move on to our last one. Our last one um, is um, to do with spiky, uh, it's a a brand name, spiky house keys. Um, And uh, I'll read the uh, headline. Hackers can now clone your keys just by listening to them with a smartphone. Seems what? legit. Great. Seems legit. I love this. So so they've worked out that with your smartphone, if they say, if you're walking past someone opening their own door, the sound that the key makes as oh, it goes into like the, the lock. This is the lamp phone thing. Oh, yeah. oh, wow. <laughs> as, as the key goes in, they can tell the different sounds of each of the uh, Yale lock. Kind of, There's five pins in there and, and the different sounds it makes. Then they can extrapolate that into the exact key and then you can clone the key and then get into someone's house. Wow. <laughs> Smash a window much quicker. Yeah, I'd like... <laughs> Nobody's going to notice a directional mic pointing at your lock as I'm listening to the sound the key makes. Yeah, I wonder if they in. did it on a, on a busy street or they had to do it in, you know... I also just love the uh, way you guys... Go, I love the way you guys go... You assume that that algorithm that has to listen for the key going in and the noises... that Just assume that algorithm works. Like, that. that is, like... That's the stretch. They do have it. They do have a video of it working. Oh come on! There was it's, a video of the lamp phone as well. Is it in a studio? That was four directional mics on a bridge pointing at a swinging light bulb. We thwarted that hack with curtains. So. <laughs> yeah, this this one I think you thwart it with a dog barking. Well, cough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just cough, cough as you put, you put your, your keys key in. in. Yeah, perfect. Public service announcement: Everybody should <laughs> cough whilst putting their keys in their dog. <laughs> <laughs> Simply easy to apparently it's relatively easy attack to, to defeat. Just make sure no one's around you recording you when you put your key in the lock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there you go. Uh, all right. <clears throat> Hackers could use IoT botnets to manipulate energy markets. Yeah. So uh, this concept has been. I've seen this a couple of times, and this is uh, almost uh, diehard fire sale kind of. Uh, realm we're getting into now. Uh, this is the idea that with the number of smart connected devices, um, like 
take smart kettles. If everybody in the UK had a smart kettle and you could control them all and instruct Who them all has to a turn smart on. Everyone... Okay, I'm going to have to stop you. Who, yeah, I mean, how many smart devices? Actually, it's quite a good chat for the end of the podcast. Uh, um, how many smart devices to, do people think they have generally? I reckon I've got about seven or eight, maybe nine, and most of those are plugged. What yeah, are you, hang on, what are you? 12, maybe. What, hang on, what are you defining as a smart device? Well, what's. Uh, light bulbs, switches, yeah. plug like, sockets, Google Home. Okay, stuff. like something that does something like not a phone or a you wouldn't get yes. like a Chromecast or a but Google Home would Google Home count? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's yeah. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, like yeah, an I mean, Alexa. This, yeah. yeah, like an Alexa. Um, but this is specifically saying that if you could turn like control all those devices at once, they'd cause a spike in electrical consumption. I mean, this is this is. This is actually a little bit accurate because uh, during like the World Cup, the national grid have to make sure they've got enough power in reserve for at half time when everybody goes and turn the kettle on to make a cup of tea. It's an actual thing that happens in the real world. They have to account for it. So if you were able to simulate that at a time where they're not prepared for it, you could crash the grid, like hypothetically speaking. It's light bulbs as well. Uh, so if you were to turn on every light bulb in... I, I really need to make an announcement or a statement about public internet-connected kettles. <laughs> they are the most ridiculous thing because they can't put water in them. Who's going to buy an internet-connected kettle to turn it on with your smartphone? <laughs> you... What? This is ridiculous! Have it connected to the mains water. Yeah, Virgin have released one. You have it. You can have it connected to your mains water and we'll give you hot or cold water on demand. Like a quokka. Right. Like a quokka. Okay, but... But that isn't an internet connected kettle. That's an instant. Uh, no, it's, water it's, smart yeah, it's smart as well. It's smart. It's smart. It's like 350 quid. What's with the point of an instant? You have to go with, to it. I am brandishing <laughs> a mug right now. You have to go with it with your mug. You need a remote controlled mug. It's a convenience, Paul. You need a smart kettle. You do not need a smart kettle. They sell it, therefore you must need it. The reason why Kev's defending this is because Kev actually owns a smart mug. I do have a smart mug. It keeps my tea at whatever temperature I set it to. Keep, what does it keep it at, Kev? You, you know what it keeps it at. Uh, 64.3 degrees. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> For 80 minutes on battery power. Uh, I'm not sponsored by Ember, but they do make brilliant cups. <laughs> Ember, if you're listening, I could do with another cup. <laughs> How expensive is this Ember self-heating 64.3 degree mug? Uh, 100 of Her <laughs> Majesty's Finest. You paid £100 for a smart mug just to get your tea at 64.3. Just drink uh, to it. Keep my, no, to keep my tea there. So the number. if you've ever taken a mouthful of cold tea, you will appreciate my Don't pain. Don't let it go cold. This is officially a tangent. Researchers said it would take as few as, as, as 50,000 infected devices to pull off an, inf- an attack. Yeah, but how, how many people actually have these kettles or will ever have... Uh, internet connected kettles well there you have it compelling and rich if you've enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe rate and comment wherever you get your audio content and if you want to know more about immersive labs you can find us at immersivelabs.com or follow us on twitter at immersive labs uk until next time from all of us goodbye goodbye